Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed the perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes! 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 Braves and Baseball Talk, straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. And hello and welcome to From the Diamond here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I am Grant McCauley. I'm in the Kia Studios in Midtown, and we are wrapping up a weekend that has been strangely devoid of the baseball that we were promised. We got it started on Friday, got just over half a game in. Apparently that's what it takes to be official. We all know that, but you'd like to get the nine if you can, but... If you can't, you want to win. That happened for the Braves on Friday. A rain-shortened win in their first encounter with the New York Mets this season. But then Saturday rained out. Doubleheader in August to make up for that one. Sunday's game is rained out. And there will be a doubleheader on Monday to try to salvage at least three of the four games in this series. And the Braves will, of course, look to continue their winning ways against the Mets when they do get that started on Monday up at City Field. Of course, weather permitting. But the forecast should be a lot better. Forecast on From the Diamond is... Baseball. We're going to talk about baseball, the Atlanta Braves, and of course, a lot of other things going on around the sport as MLB wraps up the first month of the season. It it does feel like opening day was not that long ago, and I guess technically it really wasn't, but we're about to put one month under our belts. Next thing you know, we'll be knocking on the door Memorial Day, then of course the All-Star break, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I just know how this thing goes because I've done it a few times, and yeah, baseball, while there is a new game every day and you play 162 of them and it's a marathon and et cetera, et cetera, You just seem to get pulled into it, and time passes a little bit quicker than you realize. Before the Braves, I would say more than not, they have had the start to the season that they want, even if it hasn't gone completely according to plan with some injuries and a couple of games, especially on this last homestand that we are going to talk about, that just simply were not the way that the Braves drew them up. So we're going to get into all of that. Uh, Before we get started, though, I want to remind you, as always, please subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find it on the Odyssey app, and you can, of course, follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. You can follow the show at From the Diamond with an underscore in the end. Over on Instagram, I'm also at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond. You can like it on Facebook as well by just searching for From the Diamond. And if I haven't hit you enough with the name of the show, uh, FromTheDiamond.com. That's where you can get the links to everything that I just mentioned. So I hope you weren't trying to write all that down, especially if you're driving around or maybe you're listening to the podcast for him and you're on a run right now, just don't happen to have a pen. We'll take care of you, FromTheDiamond.com. So the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, again, uh, we kind of didn't get everything in that was scheduled, of course, because of the bad weather in New York. Uh, What they did get scheduled, or what they did get in that was scheduled, I mean, of course, the last time we spoke here on this station was uh, Sunday morning as the Braves were going to wrap up their series against the Astros. That one did not go particularly well. A couple of games got away from Atlanta there. Talked about that a little bit here in the last episode of the show or last edition of the show but that was just a, a tough weekend, of course. And what do you need to do after you have a tough weekend, after you get swept? Well, you need to bounce right back and start winning some games again. And the Braves most certainly did that as they were able to take three out of four from Miami. But I think that a lot of folks would probably look at that series and think, okay, well, you should beat up on the Marlins. But I can tell you, and I think you might have noticed, the Marlins are going to be, I think, a little bit tougher this year. But it's also not how you start. It's how you finish. And the finish of that series 
was one of the more disappointing losses that the Braves have had this season. I think maybe the most disappointing loss. You're up 4 nothing going to the ninth inning. It's not even a save situation. You want to win that baseball game. The Marlins come off the deck, score five times against A.J. Minter, who had, uh, safe to say, probably the roughest homestand of his career. And A.J.'s been through it. He's been, you know, I, th- I think down in the valley and then back to the mountaintop. And sometimes you have to take that little bitty diversion back down into something that is called adversity. And as we know, and as I've said on the show, and as I do believe in baseball and in life, failure is sometimes our greatest teacher. And you got to have a short memory if you're a reliever. And I think A.J. has been around the block enough times to know that. And I think he's going to have a big role to play on this club this year. We'll talk a little bit more about him. And, of course, the role that he's filling right now may finally see the man who was designed to be the closer for the Braves, Rysel Iglesias, rejoining this club here in the next few days. It could happen very soon as he is in his, on his rehab assignment with the AAA Gwinnett Stripers, pitched again on Sunday. Another scoreless inning for Rysel. He was facing hitters in the last homestand. And I think that he is starting to look like he's ready to come on over and help the Braves at the big league level, which is something they most definitely want. As we take a look at the week that was for the Braves, this rainy weekend in New York notwithstanding, Braves are in first place in the National League East. They have at least a three-game lead over the Mets right now after the win on Friday in five innings behind Max Freed. Ronald Acuna Jr. drove in a run. Matt Olson hit a home run that they said it was 433 feet. I think it might have gone a little bit further than that, and if it didn't, it was simply because it was just pounding raindrops on its way out there. It might have slowed down the trajectory of that baseball, but Either way, for Matt Olson, great to see that. Off a left-handed pitcher, no less. He's really struggled against southpaws this year. That's something we'll get into a little bit later in the show. Just kind of the, I don't know if you want to call it Jekyll and Hyde, but there have been so many good things about Matt Olson's season from a productivity standpoint, but there have also been some other struggles and things that he's been trying to work his way through, particularly against lefties. The strikeout rate has been much higher than he would want it to be against southpaws or anybody, really. But it's hard to nitpick when somebody is giving you a 900-plus OPS and leading the National League in RBI. At least he was as of the games that the Braves have played on Friday. That's a pretty good trait for one of your big sluggers, and the Braves will be needing to get much more out of Matt Olson over the course of this season. And if he wants to just keep hitting home runs against the Mets, he can do that. That's four consecutive games head-to-head because Matt Olson, you remember, back in that little series in September, early October last year when the Braves swept the Mets and then went on to win the East again, that little thing. Matt Olson homered in all three of those games, too. And I think that, that was kind of a statement that he was beginning to break out of that slump a year ago. We saw what he did in the spring. We've seen what he's done to start this year. An integral part. When the Braves offense is going right, typically you can find Matt Olson right there in the middle of it doing something good for the Braves as, as well. Uh, on Friday, another outstanding start from Max Fried in less than outstanding conditions as they took the opener of that series from the Mets at City Field. 4 nothing. the final score in five innings. Then the postponed games came along Saturday and Sunday, and there will be, again, the doubleheader that will happen in August and a doubleheader on Monday to get this series in. And uh, two less series between these two teams because of the new schedule that Major League Baseball has where every team, are you going to see all 29 other teams every single year? So now you don't have 19 interdivisional games. You have 13 of those. So it's going to be interesting to see how exactly that all plays out. Of course, I, I'm kind of excited about seeing teams that we don't normally see, uh, clubs and players, of course. We did get to see Shohei Otani a year ago. That was pretty exciting. But Mike Trout was on the injured list last year, and I was going back and looking. The last time Mike Trout came through Atlanta was 2014. They were scheduled on the 2020 full 162-game uh, season, but then, of course, the pandemic came along, and we got a 60-game season, so that was a schedule or a series that did not happen. 
So it'll be kind of fun to see Mike Trout at Truist Park. That's crazy just to think of. So the last time Mike Trout played here in Atlanta, Mm -hmm. I was in high school. I'm now almost four years removed from college. (laughs) That's insane. There you go. Do you have your doctorate yet? Not yet. Okay. Not yet. Work on that. We're working on it. (laughs) Either way, I mean, and I'm just thinking, you know, when I came back from minor league play-by-play, it was 2012. It was that second year that I'd gotten back. I was right here with 92.9 the game. It was over at Turner Field, so it's a ballpark to go as well. Mike Trout has not played at Truist Park yet, so this will be the first time that he's done that. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see how all of that shakes out and just the opportunity to see not just Mike Trout. I mean, obviously you want to see the best players in the world, but, you know, the Braves went to Seattle last year. You got to see Julio Rodriguez. I'd love to see Julio Rodriguez rolling through Atlanta and some of the other American League teams in particular that we don't see very often or just – Every few years, now you're going to have a chance to see him at your ballpark, I believe, at least every other year is the way that whole schedule shakes out. But uh, be that as it may, the Braves and Mets are not going to play as many times this year as they played a year ago. So I say that to to tell you about the logistics of making up these games, but also you think about the head-to-head opportunity that the Braves had a year ago. They had already played the Mets 16 times when they got to sweep that series and you know have that furious finish and win the division. Well, if they play the Mets 13 times and don't do well head-to-head against them and you're looking at the standings and thinking, wow, how could we make up three games real fast? Well, you're not going to be able to head-to-head. You're not going to have that opportunity. I know that's kind of you know, lining it up just to make this particular portion of the argument. Of course, you want to make the best of your opportunities head-to-head against your divisional opponents, but there just aren't as many opportunities available to you this particular year. And moving forward, we'll see what Major League Baseball does with this schedule, but I don't anticipate a big-time change after they just made a big-time change to have all these teams with the opportunity to see one another. Uh, As I talked about, this homestand was a mixed bag. The Houston sweep over Atlanta over the weekend. Uh, The Braves nearly had that four-game sweep against Miami. Game four, of course, went sour as the weekend for A.J. Mentor. Really, the homestand for A.J. Mentor was an extremely tough one. And I do want to point out, you know, and obviously the accountability that you want to hear, I think those are the things A.J. Mentor did say after those games. I mean, he's wasn't putting it on anybody else. It's, you know, those were my pitches, and some of them I thought were good pitches that just got hit. And you got to tip your cap to the hitter sometime. And then otherwise, I mean, again, when you go through the adversity of losing a baseball game and giving up the runs and, and your team loses as a result of that, as a relief pitcher, you cannot take that out to the mound with you the next day or the day after that or whenever your next opportunity is. And I think he's done a pretty good job of that over the course of his career, really learning that lesson and becoming one of the Braves' better relievers, I think their best reliever, a year ago. So you really, you want him to get it straightened out. And by straightened out, I don't mean send him down to Gwinnett for two months or something like that. I mean, just get him straightened out. I think there's just a couple of things that, you know, he could probably tweak a little bit. Maybe some batted ball luck was thrown in there, but either way, I'm not going to try to explain it all away with, you know, not giving credit to hitters when they do what they're supposed to do. And they certainly did that. Uh, particularly, Jordan Alvarez was kind of the nemesis for A.J. Minter in that series against the Astros. As for what was going on with the Marlins, it just felt like he was a pitch or two away from getting out of that inning. But the Marlins just kept stringing them together and were able to get one of those big wins, five runs in the ninth. And I know that it doesn't make you feel great when it's just happened to you, but over the course of 162 games, you're going to win a couple games like that. Games that you had no business winning, as they say. And you're going to lose a couple of games like that, games that you have no business losing. But typically over the course of the long season, it does kind of even itself out, but The Braves are a team that has been known to stage a comeback or three over the course of a long season. So we'll see how all of that plays out. Uh, This rain situation, though, it did come at a great time for this Braves bullpen. It was supposed to be 17 straight days of games with no off days. 
The Braves bullpen didn't have to throw Friday, Saturday, or Sunday. That's a welcome respite for A.J. Minter and for everybody else. When we come back, we will continue rolling through the week that was for the Atlanta Braves, talking about some of the other big trends, a couple of big returns, and perhaps another return on the horizon for the Atlanta Braves as they look to get back up to full strength. And we look ahead to the month of May, which will be here before you know it. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, back to more From the Diamond, Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. And welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Here on a Sunday evening from the Kia Studios in Midtown as the Braves had themselves a nice weekend of baseball planned in New York. The weather, though, had other ideas. They got a five-inning game in, a complete one, I guess, if you want to call it that, at least a a win in the books, not a complete one, I guess I should say, a truncated victory for the Atlanta Braves behind Max Fried and just enough offense to take the opener of that series. They're going to try to get two more in on Monday before the road trip continues with a stop over in Miami. This was, however, a good weekend for, excuse me, a good week for the Braves, I should say, as Michael Harris' the second return from his lower back strain in the opening game in New York, and that was after a quick two-game rehab stint with Triple-A Gwinnett. Got to catch up with Michael on the recent homestand, and you could tell it was trending in that direction. Once the rehab assignment started, and you knew it wasn't going to be a very long one, if everything went well, you were going to be able to put him back in your outfield, and that's something the Braves had not had for 19 games. That was quite the absence from an injury that initially, you know, talking to Michael directly and, and to the team, well, we knew he'd be down for four or five days, so why not give him the 10-day stand on the injured list and allow him to just have a little bit of extra time, which makes all the sense in the world because you don't want to turn a little back injury into a big back injury and cost yourself maybe several months without Michael Harris. So they, of course, wanted to use the proper amount of you know, precaution and not push him too hard, or too fast. And they did that. It just turned out it took a little bit longer for Michael Harris to get back than maybe initially thought. But you know they were able to allow that back to heal up, uh, to strengthen up, and to hopefully no longer be a problem for him at any point this season because he is going to be, uh, pardon the pun, shouldering the load there in center field for the Braves. He has a very big role on this team, uh, defensively speaking, what he does for this club. And, of course, he's a reigning National League Rookie of the Year who flirted with the 2020 season last year is capable of making a big impact at the plate, on the bases, and out in the field. You like to have all those guys out there at one time, particularly when you look to the man who's playing beside him in right field, Ronald Acuna Jr., who has been absolutely on fire to start the 2023 season. I know it hasn't necessarily always looked the way that people thought it was going to look this year with Ronald maybe coming back and hitting home runs left and right, but I'll tell you this, this is about as good as I've seen Ronald over a particular period of time home runs notwithstanding, because he is hitting the ball hard just about every time he makes contact. I mean, he is blistering the baseball. And I'm going to go kind of into the stat cast numbers a little bit later in the show and just tell you exactly how good Ronald Acuna Jr. is. Because if you didn't already know, and the eye test wasn't enough for you, the numbers, the metrics, all the advanced stuff, it pretty much points out to the fact that you're watching one of the probably top five players in the game easily. And that's just out of respect for some other guys who I'm sure are very good at baseball as well. But this is what the Atlanta Braves needed from Ronald Acuna Jr. They needed to see him making an impact at the top of the order. As it is, he has a chance to not only steal a ton of bases, already on pace this year for an 80-plus stolen base campaign. I don't know if that will keep up over the course of an entire year. I mean, there may be some highs and lows and, you know, the ebbs and flows of how much he's going to be running depending on how the rest of the Braves' offense is going. But, I mean, to say that Ronald could steal 50 bases, I think it's almost a foregone conclusion at this point. 
And this was something I asked him about way back at FanFest. You know, it was my big question to him was, hey, they've got new rules here. The bigger bases aside, pitchers can't throw over as much. So are you going to be looking to steal more? Because I know it's something you like to do. And you knew it was an outward, you know, spoken goal that he wanted to get 40-40 back in 2019. I'm sure he hasn't thrown that goal out the window yet, especially now that he's playing the way that he is this year. And he said, look, when I get on, I'm always looking to steal. But I got to get on first. And that, I think, was kind of the question when you look back at 2022 was we just weren't seeing Ronald affecting the game the same way that he had. You know, he could be a guy that hits at a minimum, you know, somewhere between 280 and 300 when things are going well. But he's going to walk, so it's going to be able to on base somewhere between 370 and 400 perhaps. But to see what he's done this year, my goodness. It has been just a next level up for a player that not only does he have a next level that he could reach this season, but he's just now coming into the prime of his career. So stay tuned. We could all be seeing a lot more good stuff from Ronald Acuna Jr., and that is something I certainly expect as we move into the summer months and, of course, into the future of his career. It's looking like he's got things back on track, and that's a great thing to see. But to go back to Michael Harris, I mean, this was a guy that the Braves had definitely the high hopes of him being able to anchor center field for years and years to come. He was one of the Braves players that last year signed one of those multi-year extensions and seems to be the answer in center field, something the Braves had been looking for for a little bit there. Well, now getting him back from that injury, the man who was playing for him instead of in his stead was Sam Hilliard. And Sam Hilliard's a guy that is a very interesting story. I wrote a piece about Sam uh, about a week ago for the Marietta Daily Journal. You can check that out online. And Sam, you don't really hear of a lot of hitters that they go out to Coors Field and they just have trouble offensively really getting on track. I mean, not everybody goes out there and turns into Larry Walker or Dante Bichette or Ellis Burks or Vinny Castilla or any of the Blake Street Bombers out there, Andres Galarraga, whoever it is. But it is a nice place to hit. But there were some really fascinating things. You heard the interview I did with him a week ago just talking about that Coors Field, not only does it giveth, but it also taketh away because you go from high altitude, of course, to the you know, lower sea level at altitudes when you, you know, head around on some of those other trips that they're going to make on a regular basis. His example was when we go out to L.A. All of a sudden, the curveballs that didn't break at, in Coors Field, well, they're breaking pretty well in Chavez Ravine. And your body, it, it takes a toll on you over a long season of going 81 games of Coors Field action in Denver in the higher, the rare air, as they say and then going to all of the other places where the altitude thing just kind of messes with you a bit. So having that opportunity to come in, really kind of getting more playing time than maybe he bargained for, but show you what he can do. I mean, we've talked time and again on this show, and unfortunately it just hasn't been a conversation that's been able to end yet. How are the Braves going to solve their left field issue? Now one of the names that's been in that, you know, that mix is Eddie Rosario, and I think Eddie Rosario is starting to heat up as well, which is a great thing because that can help you solve that thing called the DH issue. Because we've had that thing going on for a while, too. In fact, it's been going on for about two years and change. And typically the name that gets pointed to just about every time when it comes to why aren't the Braves getting anything good out of DH is Marcelo Zuna. Things have not necessarily improved a whole bunch for him, but I can report over the last couple of days, he has not struck out once. So we got that going for you. But they've got to get a lot more production out of DH and left field. The Braves are down near, if not at the bottom in DH production, and they're down in the mid-20s, I believe, in all of Major League Baseball as far as rank. This is just OPS, just plain old-fashioned OPS for both DH and left field. They've got to find a way to get more out of that. So Eddie Rosario, I think, is a guy that can really help them do that. The last week or so, and he has hit into some bad luck this year. His expected batting average, I think, is right around 270. But Eddie, I believe, checks into Monday hitting about 230 this year, which means he's basically 
hit a lot of balls really hard, but some of them have been right at some fielders or some nice plays have been made on them either way. This last week, though, 7 for 17, a couple of home runs, four runs knocked in, seven runs scored, and a couple of walks as well. He's got a five-game hitting streak going. Now, five-game hitting streak might not sound like a whole lot. might not sound like you're ready to punch a ticket to the All-Star game, but you want to see progress from Eddie and see him get back to being the kind of player who can play a role on this team as a contributor. It's not necessarily going to be what Eddie Rosario was in September of 2021 and even through the NLCS where he was the MVP, by the way. He's not going to be able to do that over 162. I don't think that was ever the expectation, but you knew he was going to be able to contribute and help lengthen that lineup, as the Braves like to say. And it just didn't happen a year ago because of the eyes. But this year he's come in, he's hitting the ball harder than he was uh, really over the last couple of years. And I think he is really starting to get himself back to the Eddie Rosario that the Braves expected when they gave him that two-year $18 million deal. Eddie, though, is seeing now this year, and this is why I think it's interesting to see the adjustment that he's making, 10% fewer fastballs in 2023 than he has seen at any point in his career. And he's seeing, you might be able to do some simple math, 10% more breaking balls than he's seen at any time in his career. It's basically as though the league said, oh, Eddie Rosario had an eye problem, huh? All right, well, we're going to stop throwing him the fastball, the straight pitch, and we're going to start throwing him a whole bunch of breaking balls and see what he can do with it. So I would say, just even as you look at that, you got to be encouraged by Eddie really starting to kind of figure out how he's being pitched, continuing to make consistent hard contact the way that he has, and putting together this little hitting streak. I just think that's something worth monitoring. And, again, as you're looking for ways to find guys that can contribute for you in left field and DH, talking a little bit about Sam Hilliard, maybe being in that left field makes a little bit more now that Michael Harris is back in center field. I think Eddie Rosario, and you know, this has just kind of been you know, my take on this for a while, a very different case than the offensive struggles of Marcelo Zuna, for example. These are not the same players. They are not having the same reasons, the same context behind the struggles they've had. I mean, if anything, and I think Mark Bowman of MLB.com may have been the first one to point this out, but he probably won't be the last. When you look at what Eddie's numbers were when he was going under the, under the knife for the eye surgery last year, and you look at what Marcel's numbers are this year, it is incredibly frustrating, if not just downright, you know, just dumbstruck by the fact that a guy that needed eye surgery because he couldn't see was hitting better than a guy who was just mired in a slump and can't seem to find his way out. You know, talking to a couple of people at the ballpark a week or so ago, it just seems like they look at Marcel and see him kind of caught in between. You know, if he's cheating for the fastball, well, he gets a slider. When he's looking for that slider, well, the fastball comes in, ties him up, and he just hasn't looked comfortable. And how you get through that, I don't know, because I'm not a major league hitter nor am I a major league hitting coach, but you've got to figure out some kind of way. I mean, because it's not one of those, well, like with Eddie Rosario can lay out, you know, he is hitting the ball well, he just has nothing to show for it sometimes, or he's not having everything to show for it that he probably should, just based on, say, expected batting average. You can't really do that with Marcelo Zuna, and that's unfortunate. All right, some good news as we uh, put that off to the side for a little while. Uh, Orlando Arcia spoke to the press uh, this past week at Truist Park. I was among the reporters there. His goal is to rejoin the team in time for the Baltimore series at the end of this road trip. So about a week from now, a little less than a week from now. Now, this was not necessarily a timetable that's been confirmed yet by the team. He has had that cast removed. I believe that was after 13 days in the hard cast. He was sporting the splint uh, during the Marlins series. He was starting to get some work out on the field, but he had not put on a glove and had not swung a bat. And this, of course, is the microfracture in the left wrist from getting hit by that pitch from Hunter Green uh, about two and a half weeks ago. If you could get uh, Orlando Arcia back in your mix and that wrist is strong enough and he's feeling comfortable enough to rejoin your club sooner than later, 
that's certainly a good thing. I know Vaughn Grissom, I think, has played well enough. I know he's had a couple of games where, defensively speaking, you're seeing kind of the things that you know the Braves were looking at in the spring when they made the decision to go with Orlando Arcia over Vaughn Grissom and have Vaughn get some more work at AAA. But you have seen Vaughn Grissom, as I think we all expected to, right in the middle of some rallies. He puts together really great at-bats. He does not strike out much. You know, Hitting-wise, there's really not as much question about that. It doesn't mean he's going to come up and hit 300 for the rest of his career, but he is going to, yeah, I think, more than hold his own and be able to make some contributions to this club. So that really, I think, is what you're looking for out of him right now. But with Arcia potentially coming back here in the next week, that's some more good news for the Braves, who just got Michael Harris back, who just got um, Colin McHugh back, and who are hopeful to have Travis Darno back. I saw him on the field. He's been taking batting practice over that past uh, week or so uh, of that homestand, started to catch some bullpen sessions for some pitchers, the Braves haven't really taken that next step, and I'm sure at this point, you know, he's been out for a while, probably need a couple of rehab games, I would think. But that's obviously just kind of the theory. The more time you miss, the more you might need a couple of at-bats before you jump back into the big league level. But I'm interested to see how exactly the Braves bring him back in because Brian Snitker has stressed time and again, we're not going to rush Travis Darno back. Not only do we want to see how he looks while he's hitting, while he's catching these bullpen sessions and going through some of these other things, we want to know how he feels a couple hours later, the next day, those kinds of things, because he is dealing with his fourth concussion. So that's something the Braves are going to, I'm sure, keep in mind with how they bring him back in. And as we've talked about on this show time and time again from the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, it, we need to kind of look at roster construction because they might want to have Chadwick Trump hang out for a little while as that true third catcher and help take some of that stress off using Travis Darno right behind the plate, throwing him right back in there to start taking foul tips and whatnot. Not that I don't think he's going to go back behind the plate again sometime soon, but just the, the ability to kind of ease him back in there. There is a case to be made for carrying three catchers, and I think it's a pretty good case, as it was, if you were thinking about using Travis Darno and Sean Murphy as DH options, it would be helpful to have a third catcher. So those are things to keep in mind. As I mentioned, Colin McHugh returned to the Braves' bullpen this past week. Atlanta could get Rysel Iglesias back in the mix as he's made his two appearances on the current rehab assignment. One, I believe, was Thursday. The other one was Sunday. And let me tell you, the Sunday one, uh, if you're faint of heart, please do not look at the Gwinnett Stripers box score because that was about the only highlight in that one. There was the Braden Shoemake home run, and there was a scoreless inning from Rysel Iglesias, and there was a lot of rough stuff, unfortunately, for some of the other Gwinnett Stripers on this day, including a game started by Michael Soroka in which he was charged with eight runs on ten hits in three innings. So kind of a step backwards from a results standpoint with the potential return of Soroka. Now that I think they've gotten these few days in the middle of this 17-game stretch, not that they were going to rush him before, I really don't know what exactly a timetable could be for the Braves to welcome him back in the rotation. I know that uh, the Marlins did hit three home runs off Bryce Elder, but I don't think that's enough to really take away from what Bryce Elder has done to this point to get the Braves you know, what they need every fifth day. So as you look at the rotation, it's more based on need. You got Max Fried back. You got Kyle Wright back. You got Spencer Strider. He's pretty good. We'll talk about him later. And you've also got Charlie Morton in there starting to look pretty good as well. Throwing Bryce Elder, that's a pretty good starting five. Uh, meanwhile, we have a lot to get to on this show. We'll talk about the Braves much, much more as we roll on. But next, I'm going to be joined by the voice of the Braves for Bally Sports. His name is Brandon Gauden. We're going to chat about the Braves and how we both grew up, kind of TBS kids, and how exactly he got this job and how excited he is to be calling games for the team he grew up watching. That comes your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Now, more From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. 
Welcome back into From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Appreciate you making me part of your baseball Sunday as we talk about the week that was for the Atlanta Braves and, of course, the big weekend that's going on right now as the Braves and Mets battle things out in their first of many meetings in 2023. Will it be anything like their rivalry from 2022? Time will tell. But we have a new voice calling the Braves here this season. I think you've had an opportunity to get familiar with him, and now you're going to have a little bit of time to get to know him even better. Thrilled to be joined by Brandon Gordon right now here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. Brandon, the weekend is a big one. The Braves and Mets are meeting for the first time here in 2023. We know that was a great story over the past year or so, but I'm really interested to chat with you about a lot of different stories having to do with the Braves and how you got here, as a matter of fact. I'd be happy to do that, Grant. It's awesome to be with you, man. Well, thank you for uh, making the time for me. And let's kind of dive in here because we know it's the end of April. So all of the big stories, the big games, overall direction of this season, it hasn't really been written yet. But I know a lot has been discussed about your arrival in Atlanta. So I was just kind of curious right off the top, what has this first couple of months calling games for the Atlanta Braves been like for you sitting down behind that microphone night after night so far? Yeah, obviously for me, it was a dream come true just growing up a Braves fan. I was a superstation kid. Evan, growing up in Evansville, Indiana, people always ask, well, how are you a Braves fan? And it is because of the superstation. Yeah. You know, that, that brought the Braves into the households of everybody across the country, and that's when the Braves really took off during the 90s. And I was one of those kids that grabbed onto that, gravitated to it. And so then to get this job, obviously, earlier this year, because I was such a huge fan and had grown up idolizing Skip Carey and the Braves, it was a dream come true. But I wasn't sure how it would all play out once I got the job. I mean, I knew I would enjoy it. Obviously, the team, we expected them to be good and they mm-hmm. have been good. So that's been enjoyable. But I just there's so many variables that, that you don't really know. You don't know. You hadn't met the players. You didn't know the coaches firsthand. You'd only seen them from afar as a fan. You didn't know the day to day of what it would be like to call a game as one of the Braves announcers night in and night out. And all of that stuff has met and exceeded expectations. Great. So, look, it's it's early. I guess you could still call it the quote-unquote honeymoon phase, and maybe we should sure. check back in August or September. Uh, but right now, everything that whatever I had expected, like I said, that has been met, and then I would say even exceeded some as far as just the enjoyment. But not only the enjoyment on the air, Grant, just like I was alluding to, the people that, mm-hmm. that are involved in the organization and the day-to-day activities to the extension of the media people that aren't Braves employees but are just around the team. Everybody has been fantastic, uh, welcomed me with open arms, and just been incredibly kind. So it's been a very smooth transition so far. Well, that obviously tremendous to hear, and I'm not surprised because I've been around the club for quite some time, and you do notice the quality of the people. It really, as they say, jumps right off the page. It's something that you're going to experience if you spend a lot of time around the Atlanta Braves organization. Now, as we talk about the hot stove, if you will, and the winter and the acquisitions that go on and how did the deal get done and all of those things, I mean, I think that your story kind of falls under that umbrella a little bit because it was a big acquisition and a a new chapter for Braves broadcast. So when you found out there was a chance to call games for the Braves, this team you grew up on, how quickly did things come together really from that first conversation to, as they say, getting the deal done? I would say it all happened within about seven to ten days. So it was lightning quick. When what was unique about it, obviously, is that when these jobs open up and they don't open up very often, Mm -hmm. it's typically in October, maybe early November. 
this one didn't happen until February because of the nature of, for those who know, obviously most people know that Chip Carey went to St. Louis. Right. Well, how that happened, unfortunately, is they had to let go of their announcer, uh, Dan McLaughlin, because of some off-the-field issues. And so Chip's hiring happened late. And so, of course, the Braves hiring then happened very late. But when I saw the news that Chip was leaving, in my mind, growing up a Braves fan, and, and as we talked about the history that I have cheering for this team, I thought, okay, well, if there is one team broadcast position that I would be interested in, it would be the Atlanta Braves. And I had lived in Atlanta since 2013. I had moved down in 2013 to call games on the radio for Georgia Tech. And even when I left Tech in 2016, I loved Atlanta, so I never wanted to leave. So yeah. anyways, I was 10 minutes from the ballpark in Buckhead, and so it happened quick. When the chip news was announced, I had reached out. There was mutual interest in getting together and at least having a conversation. I went up to Truist Park probably, I don't know the exact timeline, Grant, but I'm guessing it was about five to six days after Chip announced that he was leaving. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a day of interviews there. And then it was a couple of days after that that I got the, the phone call and we proceeded forward. And it, again, it... It felt like it's probably seven to 10 days. It felt like 48 hours because everything was just a, such a whirlwind. I was yeah. also finishing up college basketball season. I call a lot of college basketball in the winter. And so everything just felt like it was warp speed, speed dating, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> uh, and before I even realized that the position was open, the position had been offered to me and there mm -hmm. I was. And I just had to pinch myself and say, wow, okay, this is really happening. Uh, there wasn't much time to process it before heading down to spring training and starting to call that first game. Yeah, the voice you hear is Braves broadcaster Brandon Gordon of Bally Sports. He joins me on the waitfor.com hotline here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. I mean, we've had time at this point to congratulate you and kind of welcome you into the Braves broadcasting family. And I really enjoyed, and you can tell just, I mean, folks on the radio can't see it, but you can. I've got a few things in my backdrop here that might just allude to the fact that I was also a TBS kid, grew up on this team, and really enjoyed the narration that I got on those long summer nights and all the way into the fall, as it turned out, when they got pretty good from the likes of Skip Carey and Pete Van Weeren, Ernie Johnson, Joe Simpson, Don Sutton. I mean, just a, a veritable who's who of great broadcasting is what the Braves had for so many years. So I know for you, the letters to and from Skip Carey is something that you've shared with all of us. And he was one of the voices of my childhood, as I mentioned. And when you did share that and had the opportunity to come full circle by getting this job, what has it been like to sit in that seat and get a chance to do for this generation of Braves fans what Skip and others did for you and I? Yeah, so there's a couple of moments so far in this job that have kind of hit me a little extra special and with a little more emotion. And they're, they're fence posts that are obvious, but the first one was that first game down at spring training mm -hmm. where you realize, okay, this is happening. Yep. <laughs> You're actually going to sit there and call the Braves games. But that felt different than the opener, which was in D.C. against the Nationals. But what felt like the cherry on top to all that was the first game at Truist Park because that's where you are in the home booth. You see the pictures of Skip, mm -hmm. of Don, of Joe, of Pete, of Ernie. You see their pictures as you walk through the hallways and in that booth. And it just kind of makes you the, the hair on your neck stand up a little bit. Uh, and even though, obviously, they didn't call games at Truist Park, you know, they were back at old Fulton County uh, in a little bit at Turner, but 
it still is that first home game that makes it feel real and extra special. And those guys, you said it, they, you said it best, that they were the soundtrack of my childhood, the soundtrack of my summers. What was different back then, as you remember, is those guys used to split half the game on uh-huh. TV and half the game on radio. So you really had four voices every night, which I always thought was kind of cool. But Skip was the lead voice of on the play-by-play, and that was known. And he was the one that just had the most impact on me because he was the one that I found myself trying to emulate when I would play make-believe baseball games in my living room. And so I thought a lot about Skip throughout the last six weeks, but in particular, that first game at Truist against the Padres, which even cooler that it was a walk-off win for the Braves Mm -hmm. on Arceus hit. But I thought when you walked through the hallway and I saw the picture of everybody, I I particularly took time just to kind of take a peek at the picture of Skip uh, before sitting down in that chair. And I got there early and I was the first one in the booth and I just looked out over the stadium for a little bit and just, yeah, I was just thankful. I was just thankful and appreciative of, of being in that moment and having that opportunity. Yeah, you know, the story kind of writes itself in a lot of different ways. We can sit down and script it out in our head. And like you said, as you're a kid growing up, you want to get into the broadcasting industry, you've run through all the scenarios. You've probably called a few Game 7s of that World Series in our mind, if nothing else. And it's pretty amazing to have the opportunity, I'm sure, to sit down and see that start to come to life and all those colors start to, I think, look maybe a little bit more vibrant as you sit down and and get to look out over that field knowing what could happen over the coming days, weeks, or even just that night's game. Who knows what's going to happen? That's the beauty of baseball, I think. Chatting with Brandon Godden, the broadcaster for the Braves for Bally Sports. You can follow him on Twitter, at Brandon Godden. He joins me here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Uh, Let me ask, as we did talk about kind of the legacy of that booth, but how much fun have you had personally getting to know Jeff Francoeur, Peter Moylan, and the crew at Bally Sports that you're calling games with on a nightly basis? And, oh, by the way, you made a big roster move and got a Hall of Famer sitting in there with you as well. That has to be pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, obviously, the last week before we came to New York working with Tom Glavin is one of my childhood idols. And I had a chance to work with John Smoltz on some Fox games last year. And that was a pinch me moment for me. And then to be able to work with Tom Glavin, uh, I had not met him but 30 minutes before, well, not 30, but about 90 minutes before sure. our first time going on air. We had, we had texted a little bit, but uh, it was just, it just felt so comfortable because he was great. And even though I had a few nerves just meeting one of my childhood idols and, and never having worked with him, he made it so easy. And once we got into the flow of the broadcast uh, and having watched him so much and heard so many of his interviews as a player in a way he didn't know me from a hole in the wall but I felt like I knew him and I had heard he was so kind and he was and you know Jeff Rancor and Peter Moylan what jumps off the page about them is just their their presence and their personality those guys they just have a gift right they just walk into a room and make anybody feel comfortable and are able to have a conversation with a brick wall and and that's i mean that is the highest compliment because they're just they're just such kind ingratiating people so getting on air you know obviously jeff's the league guy he's going to do about 100 of the games but peter's going to do quite a few this year and having that road trip with him in kansas city and san diego we really got to know each other and build a relationship and so now that i've had a foundation with all of those guys uh it's going to be really exciting because i feel like now once that foundation's set You've worked with all of them. 
the next go around, it just becomes easier and easier and easier. So hopefully the building blocks of the future, uh, now that those are sort of in place, you, you can really settle in uh, and continue to have those relationships with those guys on air that grows each time that you flip on the mic. And, and I, but but I've, I've felt nothing but ease with, with each of those three guys so far this season. Absolutely. And I think that that comes right through the TV, right through the speakers, and people are able to pick up on that. It's been pretty apparent just from listening along to those games. You guys are having an awful lot of fun up there. And that, I think, is the top priority, if you will, for doing a broadcast of this nature in the big leagues. It's supposed to be fun. And I think that it is. Uh, last one I've got for you, when you're down on the field, and I've had a chance to visit with you some before the games, and you're sitting down there and you're talking to folks, and all of a sudden Chipper Jones walks by or Andrew <laughs> Jones walks by. Or like you said, you sit beside Tom Glavin and call a baseball game. How much does that take you back to your earliest connections with this team? And it's that kind of, I don't know, a pinch-me kind of moment right out in front of you. Yeah, even a guy like Sid Bream, who mm -hmm. some Braves fans of a younger age, they may know, but they don't. They weren't around for that moment in 92 for the Sid slide. But when he came up to our booth last week for an interview in the second inning, man, I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yeah. And I... <laughs> I could have talked to Sid, even though it was mainly about one play. He was so ingratiating and kind. I could have had him up there for five innings and mm -hmm. carried on a baseball conversation. And so, yeah, so him, Andrew, Chipper, all the guys that have been around, even guys like Eddie Perez and Walt Weiss that were part mm -hmm. of those teams in the 90s, uh, those guys are a big deal to me, and they're special to me. And so to be able to have those just talk baseball conversations with them is incredibly cool. And you, you mentioned Chipper. I just met him the other day. You and I, Grant, were talking about how we both have the season recap videos from 91, 92, and 95 mm -hmm. that I used to watch religiously as a kid. Just religiously, those old VHS tapes to recap the season. I thought they were so cool. And when I met Chipper, in the 95 recap video, his parents are interviewed during the World yeah. Series against Cleveland. And one of the things I said to him, because he started talking about his parents, and I said, Chipper, this may sound silly, I've never met your parents, but I felt like I knew them through that interview right. with him throughout the 1995 yeah. World Series review tape. I, and I told him I remember his dad being so uh, comfortable and his dad being a baseball coach and his mom was as nervous as all get out. Mm -hmm. And we talked about that for a while. And it's, it's those little touch, point, touch points and then now being able to humanize those guys that to me were bigger than life. But now I see them in person. I get to have those conversations. And man, you know, I've said the word cool a couple of times here and talking to you, but but that's the word that just, just jumps out to you. It's just an incredibly cool thing to be able to do that. Yeah, no doubt about it. He is Brandon Gauden, voice of the Braves for Bally Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Brandon Gauden. And of course, you can catch him nightly calling the Braves action all season long and hopefully for a long time to come. Brandon, I really appreciate all the time that you made for me today. And I look forward to chatting baseball with you very soon. Yeah, I know. I'll be seeing you a lot, Grant. Thanks for the time. When we come back, we'll take a look at what else is happening around the big leagues right here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Taking a look around the league with more of our From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back in to From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game, live from the Kia Studios on a Sunday evening as we wrap up a weekend that was a little bit light on baseball for the Braves thanks to some bad weather up in New York. They're going to try to play two on Monday and get at least three of the scheduled four games they were supposed to have against the New York Mets. Thus far, they've only gotten five innings of one game, but five innings was enough for the Braves to grab a 4 nothing win 
in the opener of that series. Of course, we've got a lot of Braves talk to get to as we continue on the show. Great to chat with Brandon Gauden. I know if you've had the opportunity to listen to him, kind of bring his style to Braves broadcast thus far, it has been a lot of fun to know that this is somebody who grew up steeped in the, the history of the Braves and grew up kind of like myself and a lot of fans out there that, you know, we didn't know a whole lot about winning before the 90s came along, and now there are a lot of Braves fans, maybe a whole generation, that knows kind of nothing else than that or the expectation to do a lot of winning. So anyway, great to talk with Brandon. Uh, and if you did miss that for whatever reason, you can subscribe to From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast, and you can find it there. I'll have it up a little bit later on Sunday. Uh, we're going to do something I like to do each and every week is put the Braves talk over to the side and talk about some of the other big stories going on around the big leagues. And I'm going to have a little bit of help to do that here in hour number two of the show. I'm going to have Jeff Passan of ESPN on. I'm really excited to talk to Jeff about uh, what has been a very eventful month of April, not just for the Braves, but all across baseball. I mean, you come into spring training and you expect baseball season to kind of give you the unexpected. Yeah, that's the saying. Expect the unexpected because you don't know how it's going to play out. But each and every year, baseball finds a way to surprise us. And one of the big surprises we got going on, at least in the first, what, three, four weeks of the season, they have been the best team in the National League. This isn't just a good weekend or a good series. Or, hey, remember when the Pirates took the season series from the Dodgers last year for no apparent reason, but they were a terrible team? No, they've come in this year, and they have just completely, I don't know if they're out over their skis or whatnot or overplaying or, or outplaying their expectations, but this has been an incredible string of events for the Pittsburgh Pirates because if you really want to go back to it, and let's tap into some Braves history again. I mean, yes, they did have a couple of wild-card playoff appearances, but they're off to their best start since 1992. A few things went on for the Pirates in 1992. They still had a left fielder named Barry Bonds as he was you know, busy winning an MVP, I believe, that year with the Pittsburgh Pirates before joining another team, the San Francisco Giants, where he finished his career. At the end of the 92 season, Barry Bonds was the man who uh, was in charge of making one big throw for the Pirates, and it came just a hair too late to get Sid Bream, who Brandon Gordon just brought up in this little conversation we just had. And the day Sid slid was kind of the start of the Pittsburgh Pirates falling out of relevancy for what felt like about two decades. They did kind of get back into it with some playoff appearances about 10 years ago now when Andrew McCutcheon was there the first time. But now Andrew McCutcheon is back, and I don't know if that's just what they needed, you know, just uh, somebody to come in and remind them that they can do some winning, but they've certainly done it. 16-7 and seven start that they have was the best in the National League uh, and a nice little winning streak to boot with that. The Pirates' 16 wins through 23 games were more, at that point at least, than the Braves, the Mets, Phillies, Dodgers, Yankees, Blue Jays, Astros, and every other 2022 playoff team except for the Tampa Bay Rays, who I'll get to in a minute. They've been awfully good this year. They had an awfully bad Sunday, but they've been awfully good this year. But just think about that for a minute. When you come into the year and you, you read all of the different columns and all of the different you know, prognostications about who are the playoff teams going to be, I don't think anybody, even the most de devoted Pittsburgh baseball fan, was saying, you know who's going to really be out to a good start and really going to get people thinking? It's going to be the Pittsburgh Pirates this year. But at some point, if they're able to get out of this rebuild the right way, then perhaps they will start to build a winning tradition up there in Pittsburgh. But they're going to have to get somebody that wants to spend a little bit of money as well. And that's a whole other conversation for a whole other show. But... Uh, it has not exactly been the buy-in that you want to have from your ownership on that side. But be that as it may, Jason Foster, my buddy who writes for the Sporting News, uh, wrote about the Pirates being off to their best start since 1992. Should we take them seriously? And I think the answer to that question is kind of to be determined. But it is always great to see a team that just really you didn't see coming 
just come out there and surprise you. I think that's one of the beautiful things about baseball or any sport, when somebody just kind of comes out of nowhere and all of a sudden they're just one of the great stories in the sport. The Pirates certainly are one. Now, a gentleman who plays for the Pirates, and it was a long, long, long time coming, his name is Drew Maggi. He spent 13 years in the minor leagues toiling, trying to live out that dream of becoming a major league baseball player. On Saturday, it happened. 33 years of age, he pinch hit for Pittsburgh in the second game of a doubleheader against the Washington Nationals, and this was the result. From his first MLB game. And there it is. After 13 minor league seasons, over 1,100 minor league games, Drew Maggi has his first big league hit, and there's an RBI attached to it. That was his first major league hit. It came in the seventh inning of that game against the Washington Nationals, an RBI single to center. And his teammates, you, you might want to just – I cannot really do it justice here just explaining how excited they were. you got to go watch the video and see how excited – because anybody that played baseball for any length of time and had that dream of, oh, you know, maybe I can make it to the major leagues and you know get there. Well, then you get drafted or you sign with a big league team and you go to the minors and you go – and try to live it out and try to find your way there. And for some guys, you know, it just happens in a matter of months. For other guys, you know, like Bob Horner, never played a minor league game, for example. He just made it straight to the big leagues. Drew Maggi, though, uh, the exact opposite of that. The ninth oldest player to debut in the expansion era. The only man who was older than him was Alan Zenter. This happened actually last June. He was 34 years of age, 2022 uh, was when Zinter made his debut for the Houston Astros. When you talk about the expansion era, I believe that's 1961 and on. So we're talking about a pretty good sample size of baseball. So Drew Maggi, 13 years he was waiting for it and got into the act for the Pittsburgh Pirates. So congratulations to him for sure. Now I brought up the Tampa Bay Rays because they have been perhaps the toast of baseball here in the early going. I'm going to talk to Jeff Passon about this because you know I always know that the Rays, and I've worked in their organization before as a minor league broadcaster and just kind of get to see the way that it works, they find ways to win. They find players that they get more out of than other clubs will, would ever have dreamed of. And I always feel like, or I almost feel like, when somebody, or when the Rays call you and you're a GM for another team and they say, you know, we're interested in so-and-so, you might want to think about not trading them that player. I mean, I don't know what they're offering you in return. I'm just saying, it's, I don't know if it's an old wives' tale or something at this point, but just be cautious because you don't know what exactly the Rays are going to do with that player. But a, a crazy, crazy night uh, on Saturday for the Tampa Bay Club. They were getting no hit into the seventh inning by Lance Lynn and the Chicago White Sox. Now, why is that relevant? You know, oh, well, they finally had a bad night. The bats finally went cold. Well, they were until they weren't because not only did they break up that no-hitter in the seventh inning when Wander Franco homered, uh, the White Sox turned around and beat the White Sox, or excuse me, the Rays turned around and beat the White Sox 12-3. to So they went from being no hit to blowing out Chicago. Well, Chicago was able to find a little measure of revenge on Sunday, scoring seven times in the bottom of the ninth inning to match the seven runs that the Rays had scored in the eighth and ninth innings and managing to not blow a game to Tampa Bay this time around. 12-9, to the Chicago White Sox won it. That snaps a 10-game losing streak. Their longest since 2013. Uh, they're now one and six against the Rays. So eventually they were. I mean, it's, I don't know if it's broken, uh, broken clock is right twice a day, uh, or blind squirrel, whatever you want to call it. But the White Sox finally found a way uh, to beat the Tampa Bay Club. Uh, but in the midst of all of this, you know, and the frustrations that come with getting off to such a bad start uh, as the Chicago White Sox most certainly have. Uh, 
Uh, they are now 8-21 and 21 after their win on Sunday. But on Saturday, Luis Robert Jr., who is one of the, I think, most talented young outfielders in baseball, got pulled before a second inning at bat. He had grounded out to the pitcher in the first and just decided, and this is not like a grounder right back to the pitcher where you know it's, hey, he's going to make the throw and you put in like a modicum of effort. This was kind of a tough ball that was topped over to the third base side of the mound. The pitcher had to sprint off and throw off balance, and then Robert comes lumbering into the screen. I mean, this is a guy who's got some terrific speed. Well, Pedro Griefel, who is the manager of the Chicago White Sox, wanted to send a little message there. And I've said this before, and I know we've talked about it at different times for different players over the years, but you know, the level of effort that you put forth, that is under your control. What happens to the baseball, where it goes, and all those things, I wish it was that easy, but it's not. But your effort is certainly under your control. Uh, something that has not been under the control of Jacob deGrom over the past few years is his health. Uh, injury update for Jacob deGrom from the Rangers. He has landed on the injured list with an elbow issue. Inflammation as he left his start recently. This is something I think you almost had to expect at some point with Jacob deGrom. He signed that five-year, $185 million contract with the Rangers this winter. Had been with the Mets for nine years, but it really felt like the last two or three years. The question wasn't, is Jacob deGrom the best pitcher on the planet? To which the answer was typically yes. It was... Is Jacob DeGrom healthy enough to pitch? And the Mets did not get the answer that they wanted uh, for quite some time. DeGrom's now 34 years old. And I guess was, um, the midway point of 2021 was really when it finally it showed some signs of maybe health not being on the side of Jacob DeGrom because he was terrific for about a four- or five-year run before that. In fact, didn't miss a start. Uh, this, according to an article from the AP, is going back and just kind of chronicling what has been so 2021, 22, and now 23, so about three years now where Jacob deGrom's health has really just not cooperated with him. 30 and a third innings, though, this year, he's looked like Jacob deGrom. 267 ERA, whip well under one, 45 strikeouts and only four walks. I mean, when this guy is healthy, he is the best pitcher in baseball. The problem is he just has not been healthy enough. And the Rangers, you know, they did what the Mets, I think, were willing to do, which was put down some big money to have Jacob deGrom around. But I think they might have just gone a little bit above and beyond even the level the Mets were comfortable with. And they were very well aware of Jacob deGrom's resume as well as the injury report that they've had to look at. But five years, $185 million is a pretty big deal for deGrom. And hopefully this is something minor. He has gone on the IL with elbow inflammation a couple of other times in his career. It's always been something that hasn't been a major deal. But every time you hear elbow, you just kind of wonder, is it going to be a long-term situation or a season-ending surgery? But as of right now, it does not sound like it's going to be trending in that direction, but he's going to be reevaluated, and they're going to figure out exactly what they need to do and how they can try to overcome, which that's a difficult thing to do. There's just not another Jacob deGrom hanging out down on the farm that you just call up for emergencies. It just doesn't work that way. So deGrom to the IL for the Rangers. As we go through a couple of other ones, I thought were pretty interesting here from the week that was in Major League Baseball here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Alex Cobb is now pitching for the San Francisco Giants. He came up with a raise, uh, pitched for a couple of other teams. He's been around for a little while now, about 10 years or so in the big leagues, uh, more than 10 years, about 12 years, I guess, in the major leagues. He tossed a shutout for the Giants back on the 24th of this month, which is a pretty cool thing when you think about it, veteran pitcher. He became the oldest Giants pitcher to throw a shutout since Mark Gardner in 1998. Now I know Randy Johnson pitched briefly for the Giants, not for very long, though, and it was at the very, very tail end of his career, so perhaps that was why the big unit didn't throw a shutout. But it kind of surprised me. 
I haven't thought about Mark Gardner since about 1998, so that's one trivia question. But it's, it goes a little bit beyond that because the last time Alex Cobb threw a shutout was 10 years and 244 days prior. So he went more than a decade between shutouts in the majors. And if you've watched baseball and have seen the way that it's gone, bullpens are utilized a lot more. The complete game is no longer something that you can expect every starting pitcher to throw three, four, five, six of. just doesn't happen. The Braves had one complete game last year. And if you had Bryce Elder on your bingo card of who threw it, well, congratulations. That's who threw it. Uh, but according to Elias, the Elias Sports Bureau, that's the third longest span since 1900 between a pitcher's first and second career shutout. So he'd only thrown one in his whole career, finally threw his second, but it just took him uh, nearly 11 years to get that whole thing done. And I'll wrap up on this one. I thought this was probably one of the neater things. If you follow me on Twitter, at Grant McCauley, or on Instagram, more to the point, I do a little thing where I like to open up some baseball cards, and I'll share some of my sports memorabilia and whatnot. I like to do that each and every week, especially the baseball card thing, but also some of the memorabilia is uh, a little bit fun, and you you can make some videos and content, and everybody, I think, you probably got some different things laying around that you think are pretty cool. Well, apparently, a Mike Trout signed baseball, you don't need me to tell you that that's a cool thing to have. But a signed ball from his Little League career was recently sold, and it went for $15,600 through Robert Edward Auctions. This according to a report from ESPN. This was signed by Mike Trout at age 12. And I saw a picture of this ball on Twitter. I thought it was pretty neat. Trout's uncle has kept this ball since 2004 when Trout signed it after smashing a home run in a Little League game. Trout's uncle obviously knew what he was sitting on and decided to move it along. Now, Trout's only 31 years old. Robert Edward Auctions said that this is an incredible relic from the earliest days of Mike Trout's legendary career. It's like having one of Picasso's earliest sketches. This baseball is part of Trout's origin story, a -a one-of-a-kind piece of memorabilia for any Trout collector or super fan. I've got a few sketches and things I drew up in grade school. If anybody wants to give me 15 grand for yeah, them. Yeah, I say pay 16K for them. Yeah, please, <laughs> please let me know. I'll be happy to report the taxes too. I'm not trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes. When we come back, we'll be joined by Jeff Passan of ESPN to talk about what has been an eventful first month across Major League Baseball. And we'll sneak in a little Braves talk as well. This is From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Back to Graham McCauley for more From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Welcome back to From the Diamond on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Grant McCauley with you from the Kia Studios here on a Sunday evening as we wrap up the week that was. And, of course, take a look all around the big leagues to see what else is going on. I've got a good guest to help us do just that. He's Jeff Passan of ESPN.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Jeff Passan. If you're listening to this, I'm pretty sure you already do. And I'm thrilled to have Jeff join the program right now to talk about some of the big things going on across Major League Baseball as we close out the first month of the year. And as we do that, I think it's a great time to check out some of the early trends. And Jeff, you wrote a great column about a trend that no one really wants to see at any time of the year. And that, of course, is a spike in injuries that are happening to open the season. What do you feel like is contributing to a lot of the IL stints we're seeing here in the early going? You know, Grant, I think it's a number of different factors, some that portend long-term issues, some that have shorter-term implications. But the fact that over the first 20 days of the season, between the beginning of spring trading and the first 20 days of the season, uh, injury rates spiked more than 25% from any previous year on record, Mm -hmm. uh, it's a bad sign. And 
I, I think it's a confluence of number one, you have more players coming into the sport who have been injured in the past. And the greatest predictor, particularly of a future arm injury is a past arm injury. I yeah. think it's the fact that uh, players are designing their own pitches these days and that the max effort stress and strain that's put on arms because of that pitch design. It's not always problematic, but it can be problematic. Uh, I don't at all discount the idea that the pitch clock is partially responsible. Mm. If you look at the idea of fatigue and the amount of downtime between pitches contributing to a player's health, uh, that's a huge factor potentially. But I think there are plenty of guys also who work fast and are doing just fine. And I, I also think it's a weird year because the World Baseball Classic. You yeah. have not just Edwin Diaz and Jose Altuve getting hurt at the WBC, but uh, you have a lot of guys who have been put in position in spring training to throw more meaningful innings. And because of that, probably not a huge factor, but certainly not something we can look at and say there's no way this has anything to do with what's going on in baseball right now. Yeah, that's a really good point. And while these injuries are certainly you know, disconcerting and you never want to see them, there's never a good time for one, but there's also, it's hard to track down what could be the root cause because of so many other factors you just laid out. We are seeing the pitch clock, though, have a dramatic effect on the game, I think, as it's whittled down the time of game to its fastest average in just, what, over 40 years, I believe I read in your column. And I know yeah, that's, that's been, uh, yeah, just, you know, just 40 years, every 40 years or so we might make an improvement, but you know, I know that's looked upon by most people and a lot of fans probably as a net positive that the game's moving faster, but do you think there are times, I mean, and aside from the injury component that you just brought up, but, and I'm thinking particularly late in games where the pace of play can be, or should be almost secondary to the drama that should be playing out in real time, whatever that real time may be. You know, I personally, like, I understand that argument. I think the premise is a little false, though, because mm -hmm. does that not presuppose that 40 years ago, late inning drama didn't exist True. or wasn't quite the same as it is now? I feel like the drama is in the score. The drama mm -hmm. is in the matchup. Mm -hmm. And the speed of it doesn't necessarily make it that much better. Now, you can argue that, yeah, there's a little slow burn element and, you know, it increases the tension. But uh, as somebody who is just fascinated by the one-on-one -on -one matchups in baseball, I like the idea of a pitcher saying, you know what, I'm going to give you my best stuff right now. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and hit it. And whether it's an accelerated pace or a slow pace, I think the, the inherent core of that remains. And because of that, I'm personally okay with it. I look at the game right now, and this was in the aforementioned column by you. To me, the most interesting part is not a whole lot has changed from five years ago other than the time of game. Yeah. And that was really interesting to me. The batting average is within a point. The on-base percentage within a point. Slugging percentage within two points. Wow. Same walk rate. Strikeout rate is practically identical. You know, ERA, fielding independent pitching numbers. Like, everything is the same as 2018, except it's 29 minutes shorter. And the argument I think that can be made there, why that's a good thing, is that even though the action is very similar as to what it was back five years ago. Mm -hmm. It's packed into a tighter time frame, and because of that, the action is more frequent. You don't have to wait four minutes in between every batted ball. 
Yeah, that's a really yeah. good point. And I think about some particular matchups, like a hitter like Juan Soto, it seemed like he is very much wanting to dictate his pace oh, yeah. and, and have that control oh, of that at bat. Then I think of, and it's just an example, but a pitcher who's deliberate is Kinley Jansen that we saw in Atlanta last year, and there are others. But when you do think about it, if those two guys are going to square off in the ninth inning, but you kind of strip away the aspect of maybe being able to control the clock, which is a really weird thing yep. to say about baseball because we've never really yep, said it yep. before. It's just it's very fascinating, as you were pointing out, kind of the game within the game, but also just trying to speed that up and deliver the action quicker. Yeah, and while Juan Soto has struggled this year, Kenley Jansen's been pretty great for yeah. the Red Sox. So, I, I mean, it just goes to show that this is only – well, now I take that back. It's not only a mental adjustment. I think it's mostly a mental adjustment. The physical element, especially if you're a hitter, it's really the same game. It's just at a quicker pace. And you know what? I watch a lot of high school baseball these days, mm -hmm. and if there was a pitch clock, there would not be any violations because the kids deliver the ball and the hitters are ready. And so in a way, I think it takes you back to the game you grew up playing. And as romantic a sport, Grant, as baseball is, I don't think it's necessarily ever a bad thing when you get taken back to your youth and yeah. can remember fondly those days. Yeah, no, I would 100% agree with that. And I know I've been hearing this saying a lot lately, and I've brought it up on my show quite a bit. Nobody likes change, but people do like improvement. And if that's something that's happening yeah. for the sport through this, then perhaps this is overall a net positive beyond just the time. Chatting with Jeff Passan, who covers MLB for ESPN. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Passan. He joins me on the WaitFor.com hotline here on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Uh, Jeff, there are certainly some surprises in the standings here early on, because who in the world had the Pittsburgh Pirates at any point this season past maybe opening day having any share of the best record in the National League? But they do. They're the first-place Pittsburgh Pirates. Is May's right around the corner. I don't know how long it can last, but the Bucks are one of the early surprise stories of the year. So I guess that brings up the obvious question. How exactly are they doing this? Well, the answer to your original question, who had them there? Uh, not me. <laughs> Either. I, you know, I thought this was going to be a transitional year for the Pirates. You know, they're bringing up some of their prospects. They've got a pretty good system. Mitch Keller coming into his own. O'Neill Cruz was going to have a full season. Brian Hayes, another mm -hmm. year in the big leagues. They signed Brian Reynolds. Like they've got some pieces there but man uh they're they're doing this with really good starting pitching which is a shock because uh, unless you are a hardcore baseball fan uh i would defy you to name more than two guys in the pirates rotation and right they also lost jt brubaker to tommy john surgery so it's not like they're at full strength right now their rotation is good they're catching the ball and they're hitting pretty well and you know what when you're doing all phases of the game, Grant, you're probably going to win some ball games. I don't think this is going to last. I don't see the Pirates beating the Brewers or the Cardinals, who I think, even though they've gotten off to a pretty wretched start, are, are, are going to right the ship at some point. But uh, if the Pirates are a 500 team this year, that wouldn't surprise me at this point. They've certainly given themselves a lot of breathing room to to make that and it's a really cool thing to see because as somebody who lives in a midwestern city and sees on an everyday basis a team with a small payroll and just how difficult it is to win with that what the pirates are doing right now is awesome 
Yeah, and I think the sport's better for it when these stories come along and some of these, I don't want to call them plucky underdogs. I don't want to you know undercut what they're accomplishing, but it's great to see this kind of result for a team like that when you're playing in a league where you know Steve Cohen's the owner and is spending as much money as we've ever seen spent in the sport. But we'll put that aside for another time. If you look out west in the <laughs> National League, Arizona looks better on the flip side. I think the Dodgers have looked better in the past, but we still have a lot of baseball to be played. The San Diego Padres are also out there. So the Diamondbacks are contending with not just one, but two, I think, very favored playoff hopefuls and a very, very tough-to-deal-with scenario as it goes on, much like for the Pirates. But it's fun to see a club like the Diamondbacks kind of return itself to relevancy here in the early going and utilizing some of the great young players that they've been producing through some of the lean times. Yeah, and they play a really fun brand of baseball. Uh, I, I almost look at them like Braves light. You know, they don't have uh, – Corbin Carroll is not Ronald Cunha Jr. And they don't have – you know, Christian Walker is not Matt Olson. Uh, Zach Allen might be Max Freed. Yeah. Like, Zach Allen, 28 straight scoreless innings uh, after a similar streak last year. He's really, really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you can tell the Diamondbacks are serious because they ate almost $35 million to get rid of Madison Bumgarner because right. – he simply was not performing. And coming into the season, you know, when I was asked, who's the team no one's thinking about that's going to be good, the Diamondbacks were almost always my pick because I feel like this new brand of baseball where uh, stolen bases are at a premium, uh, athletic teams are going to do well. And the Diamondbacks are a very, very athletic team. Uh, They got a lot of speed on the base paths. They catch the ball really well. Uh, I don't know that they're a playoff team this year, Grant, but – uh, I think as more players from their system come up, whether it's Brandon Fodd, a right-hander who strikes a bunch of guys out, Jordan Lawler, number six pick in the draft a few years ago, is going to be their shortstop of the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Drew Jones, eventually, Andrew Jones' oh, son, yeah. who's number two pick in the draft last year and a dynamic center fielder. Diamondbacks have a chance to make some noise for a long time. They really do. They're building something special out there in the desert. Wrapping up a couple of more here for Jeff Passan of ESPN. He covers MLB, of course. There you can follow him on Twitter, at Jeff Passan. Of course, if you're listening to the show, you probably already do. You get an awful lot of good stuff over there uh, from Jeff. And I think we could expect the Tampa Bay Rays. They've shown us over the years and really for quite a while now. They can find a way to win. But I felt like when some people looked at the rules changes, they may have thought, okay, well, this is going to neutralize or at least put a dent in the Rays' style and their game plan. But so far... I think the Rays are just showing everyone they can just go out there and outslug other teams, among other things. This is a really surprising start by a club that you know always finds a way, but somehow they're finding an even more different way, kind of night and day different than the way they've been doing things in recent years. Yeah, uh, you know, this is right up there with the Pirates are going to be in first place. Uh, the Rays are going to be the best offensive team in baseball. Uh-huh. Was not on my checklist of things coming into the season. But it's just the contributions they're getting from everyone. Wander Franco is making the leap right now. Randy Rosarena, we saw him stand out in the WBC and has been great this season. But it's guys like Isak Paredes, Harold Ramirez, and Luke Rayleigh, and Josh Lowe, mm-hmm. and even someone like Taylor Walls, who's a glove-first guy who's hitting this year. They don't have a weak position. When you have to go through that lineup that is among the lower strikeout rates in baseball, that's even with Brandon Lau, who has probably been the best offensive player for them this year, and he strikes out a fair bit. When you have a team full of players 
who are tough outs, it, it reminds me a lot again of the Braves lineup. And I know I keep bringing the Braves up because I, you know, I picked them to win the World Series this year, so I'm clearly a fan of what they have. But when you have to face the Braves, you don't have a moment off. There's nobody in the lineup where you're like, okay, you know, now that Michael Harris is back, especially. There's no one you're like, okay, I can take a breather. I can throw not just a get-me-over pitch, but I can try to induce weak contact instead of going for swings and misses. No, in the Rays lineup, there is no such thing. And because of that, their pitching we knew was going to be good. Their pitching is always good. But, man, their lineup has been such a pleasant surprise, and they are a really, really enjoyable team to watch. Yeah, setting themselves up for what could be a very exciting season in one of the historically toughest divisions to win in year over year. They just seem to find a way to do it. Now, you brought up a very sleek World Series pick that I think a lot of folks listening will be very excited to hear (laughs) and may already be aware of. But I don't want to let you get out of here without asking about one of the big stories around Atlanta for the last calendar year or so, and that's Spencer Strider. I know you enjoy watching this guy pitch as well. We all do. What do you feel like makes this guy so above and beyond special every time he takes them out. The Braves were in Kansas City probably about 10 days ago or so now, and I had never met Spencer Schreider. I was fascinated by him, by his worldview, by his approach, by the way he goes about his business on the mound. And we talked for an hour, and it felt like five minutes. Uh, He's just such an interesting human being. Not, Mm -hmm. Not just like interesting baseball player. He's just like a dude I want to hang out with and, and listen to talk because the, the way he approaches life is fascinating. It's, it's really interesting to me about him and why I think he's so great. His brain organizes itself in a very objective fashion. Like he looks at the world almost algorithmically. Mm-hmm. And I think that he has the efficiency of his game is that he recognizes what he does really well and he's gone about trying to perfect it and he puts in immense amounts of effort both physically and mentally to doing so yeah and it just gets back to this idea grant know thyself Mm -hmm. and i think spencer strider knows himself extremely well and that's what allows him to get the best version of himself Yeah, I would agree with that, and that's kind of a tenet you can live life by and have a lot of success with, and something that Spencer Strider always seems to be, and I know it's something he said back in spring training, find a way to be 1% better today than I was yesterday, and when you throw 100 miles an hour, I don't know if you can find a mile an hour every day, but you can certainly find ways to make that thing work, and he's done it time and time again. Jeff, I really appreciate all of your time. Uh, Obviously, everyone out there is well aware that they can follow you, find all the big MLB stories and great columns on ESPN.com throughout the course of baseball season, and you keep us busy and you keep us nice and warm around the hot stove. Jeff, I really appreciate the time. Look forward to chatting with you again soon. Pleasure is mine, Grant. Thanks for having me. Well, that was a great visit with Jeff Passon of ESPN. When we come back, we'll put our focus on the week ahead for the Atlanta Braves. That's coming your way next on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley on Sports Radio 92.9 The Game. Baseball. Now back to more Grant McCauley and From the Diamond. Brought to you by Mark Spain Real Estate. Get a guaranteed offer from Mark Spain Real Estate. 855-299-SOLD. On Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Wrapping things up here on From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. On Sports Radio 92.9, The Game. Live from the Kia Studios as we close out the weekend. We were kind of hoping to have a little bit more baseball than we got. What we did get on Friday was good enough. 
You got, uh, what, five innings of great baseball from Max Freed and uh, four runs that helped the Braves take the first and only game they've been able to get in thus far of what was scheduled to be a four-game series against the New York Mets. So we're going to jump in and talk a little bit more about what is going on with the Atlanta Braves heading into uh, what is, I, I think, you know, just after a month where you felt like some things that went wrong might have you looking up in the standings, the Braves have got to be pretty happy to be at least coming into Sunday with a three-game lead over the second-place New York Mets. They do have a series in Miami after the doubleheader that they're going to try to play on Monday, and I believe the weather reports are positive for Monday, like they should be able to get these two games in. starts at 110. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but you should be able to get those games in, then the series against Miami, then come home, face the Baltimore Orioles, and then they're going to have this thing. I had to look this up, see what it's called. I think it's called an off day. Like a real off day, and they're going to have one of those. I mean, if it were not for these two rainouts, the Braves were in that stretch of 17 consecutive days without one. And that was one of those. And there's always a couple when you go through the schedule that you look at and you're like, wow, that's going to be a long two and a half weeks right there. But I don't seem to remember too many 17-game stretches. But, you know, maybe that's just me. Maybe it's just any day that there's a baseball game is a good day for me. Most of the time it is. I can't do anything about the score. But I do enjoy watching some baseball and obviously talking about it as well. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what the Braves have going on in this trip that we have seen. And again, it was only five innings, but Max Fried has been absolutely terrific since coming off the injured list. He's been everything that the Braves knew that he could be, expected him to be, everything I think that he expects for himself. Uh, you know, Max is just showing it out, and despite the hamstring injury that did cost him about two weeks of his season, he's just come right back out, and he's just throwing zeros up on the board. 0-45 is his ERA after his five scoreless innings against the Mets this last time out. He does get credit for a shutout. That goes in the record books. Even though it was only five innings, it was a complete game, and therefore it is a shutout. Um, but when you look at what he's been able to do, I mean, he is so efficient. And this started pretty much since day one of spring training when I saw him get on the mound and just face some Braves hitters. I mean, this guy just seems to be dialed in. He threw six different pitches against the New York Mets on Friday as he used, I think, 89 pitches across those five innings. And, you know, pitching in the rain the entire time as well. It's not a whole lot of fun, but six different types of pitches. When Max Fried was coming up, you know, five or so years ago, it was good fastball, great curveball, you know, has a change up. You know, he's got enough to compete because he has some elite level pitches, including that curveball. But by adding a slider, by having a change up, by throwing multiple different types of fastballs, I mean, he sinks it, he can cut the ball. He's got the four-seamer. He can do that. You know, he's got a sweeper and slider, according to StatCast. Sweeper's the whole thing I'll get into later. It's just a recategorizing what I think is still a slider, but, you know, semantics. So for the point of it, we'll leave it there for a little bit. But when Max Fried is mixing those pitches up, he does something so effective. is He can go in the strike zone when he needs to, but he gets hitters to expand. And I think you saw that. 17 swings and misses for Max Fried in a five-inning outing against the Mets on Friday, by far as most in the season, and it matched his total, I believe, from his next-to-last start in, or, well, it was September 22nd of 2022. Who really cares which number it was? But either way, 17 swings and misses in that start. He threw seven innings to get them. So my point is, the Mets, and maybe the rain, was not very helpful for hitters either, but whatever Max Fried was throwing up there, they were not having a whole lot of fun trying to deal with it. And when you couple that with what we're seeing in another rain-shortened outing, this one, though, for Kyle Wright that happened on Thursday against Miami, and this was one of the big things, I think, that led the Braves' bullpen to really starting to feel overtaxed. They had to cover six innings because of that three-hour rain delay. Kyle Wright was in a just he was in a groove. Three innings, scoreless baseball, six strikeouts. He looked terrific. He figured, all right, well, Kyle Wright's got it moving. 
Maybe he can get the Braves six, maybe even pitch into the seventh inning if he's efficient enough to do so. Well, then the rain had other ideas. And then, of course, we know he yeah, got to the ninth inning with a 4 nothing lead, and that was not enough uh, for the Braves on that day because the Miami Marlins scored those five runs. And a lot of that was at the expense of A.J. Mentor, who I'm going to talk about a little bit more in a moment. But just focusing on this rotation, you know, can anybody look stronger than Spencer Strider has looked, particularly in that last start? We didn't get a chance to talk about this enough, I think, earlier on in the show. I did talk about it with Jeff Passon of ESPN. And, again, if you missed that interview – be sure to check out From the Diamond wherever you get your podcasts or on the Odyssey app. You know, Spencer Strider has a chance every fifth day, I feel like. And when you're in the ballpark and you know he's going to be on the mound, you could see a number of different things that just most pitchers are just not going to be able to accomplish. I mean, if this is double-digit strikeouts. You could pretty much look forward to that. He's going for, I believe, his 10th consecutive start of nine or more strikeouts to extend his franchise record which he passed John Smoltz from 1997 with that. Uh, and there's a short list of players. Among those are Nolan Ryan that have had streaks like that. So anytime you can climb onto a strikeout list with Nolan Ryan, you've probably done something right. And Spencer Strider, speaking of Nolan Ryan, was flirting with a no-hitter in that last start, carried it all the way into the eighth inning. And I've gone back and looked at that pitch to Gene Segura, the single to left that broke it up. I still don't know how he hit that. And I know a lot of folks were like all over Segura because he was bat flipping and, and whatnot, but – he wasn't bat-flipping out of, like, this celebration of he had just had this amazing accomplishment. I think those guys were just happy to put the bat on the ball against Spencer Strider because they were not having a lot of fun dealing with him on that night. That was more, I think, between teammates. And I'll say this and then leave it alone, but if you're going to be excited about your players flipping bats, then you got to let everybody else on the other team flip bats. That's just how it works. That's how we trade it off. I like it. I love the emotion. Hey, if you hit a big home run, you get a big hit, you get a big strikeout. You know, you make a great play in the field. Pump your fists. Do all the things you need to do. You know, Have a crazy home run celebration. Just don't wear a big hat because apparently companies don't like that. But you know, it's just part of the game, the emotion that goes into the game. And I think Spencer Strider gets the emotions of fans going. But when he's out there on the mound, it's, it's, I mean, he's competitive, clearly. You can tell that he's locked in there. But you never look like and never seems like his emotions are ever getting the best of him. And he's one of the most cerebral pitchers that I think you can ever really – talk to about his craft. It's really interesting to hear the mindset of Spencer Strider because the arm talent's there. That's one thing. But when you take somebody that has an elite fastball, talking like plus-plus fastball, 80-grade deal, and a slider. I mean, I think Skip Schumacher of the Marlins, their manager, said, we just felt like we were facing a closer for like eight innings. This guy's just out there just blowing us away. What are we supposed to do? The stuff is just it's off the charts. And that's exactly what it is. And I think, and this may not be much of a stretch for most people listening to this, Spencer Strider's going to have a chance to do some more special things every fifth day. So if he does end up getting a no-hitter, the first one for the Braves since 1994, April the 8th, Dodger Stadium, Kent Merker. That was the last one, just in case you're wondering. I've had that like in my drafts anytime somebody gets into the seventh inning with a no-hitter. Shelby Miller was like a, an out away. Sean Newcomb was an out away. I mean, there have been close calls or whatnot. Those are two that, that jump to mind. And, you know, it, Spencer Strider could be the answer to that trivia question. When was the last no-hitter by a Braves pitcher? That would be a pretty cool thing. Uh, let's talk a little bit about A.J. Minter, who has had a pretty rough go of it, filling in at closer for the Braves with Rysel Iglesias out. And if you have missed that news, Rysel Iglesias is out on a rehab assignment right now, so he's nearing a return. He threw for Gwinnett again on Sunday, and what I can only tell you was a complete bloodletting um, up in Gwinnett at the hands of Buffalo. 21-9 was the final score there. Michael Soroka 
giving up eight runs on ten hits in three innings there. And if you're looking for highlights, there weren't very many, but Rysel Iglesias with another scoreless inning, that makes two of those for him. We'll see when the Braves could activate him from the IL. I talked to Mark Bowman of MLB.com about this. You know, A lot of times you want to see a relief pitcher, particularly somebody that's been down for about a month or more now since he's you know faced hitters in a competitive environment, does he need to make back-to-back appearances? That's usually a big thing at the end of spring training where most relievers, you know, they make their scheduled appearances. Then in that last week or so, they want to throw back-to-back games. Just kind of be ready for that as you get into the season. Maybe the Braves aren't going to need that out of Rysel Iglesias. We'll see. He could, again, throw maybe on Monday. I don't know. Uh, and then be activated after a day. But that would kind of put him into a Wednesday availability return. He's certainly not going to throw three straight days between the minors and majors. I can go ahead and tell you that. But it'll be interesting to see when he gets back. So uh, with Rysel Iglesias back, I think it allows A.J. Minter to move back into a role that he served so well really the last couple of years, since the second half of 2021, when he came back up from Gwinnett after really figuring some stuff out, became part of that vaunted night shift group that did everything you possibly could have asked a bullpen to do uh, throughout a postseason run and to close out a division chase and you know, win the division coming back in 2021. It wasn't 10 and a half games by Memorial Day, but the Braves, they had to do some serious work in the second half of that season, and we all know how the story ended. And we all know a lot of the big chapters and, and going and getting Jorge Soler and Jock Peterson and Eddie Rosario and doing those things. That bullpen really stepped up. The Tyler Matzik moment, I was at that ballpark. I can get goosebumps right now just thinking about it. That's as loud as I've ever heard any sporting event I've ever been to. And that's one of the all-time great moments for this club. But be that as it may, well, April's typically not going to give you those kind of moments unless Spencer Strider's pitching. A.J. Minter has been in the middle of some of those for the Braves, a lot of them, I think, for the Braves. And you're going to need him to figure it out and sort it out. Uh, but if you look at the last three and two-thirds innings, last four appearances for A.J., 10 hits, 10 earned runs, 11 of the 22 batters that he faced reached base. He had 10 hits and a walk there. He took three losses. He did have a save on Wednesday, so you kind of thought, all right, the Astros series wasn't great. Let's get him bounced back there on Thursday, and then the Marlins went out and did what they did. But I do think that he's going to be able to figure this thing out, and I do think he's going to have an important role to play, but you need to get Rysel Iglesias back in that mix. The Braves needed to get Colin McHugh back in that mix, and I think having those guys will allow other pitchers to kind of slot into the roles that they were originally kind of designed to do. Brian Snitker said this in the last homestand. We went about three weeks without having any any kind of games like that. You're going to have a few of them throughout the course of the season. When the Tampa Bay Rays are the best team in baseball, they just gave up seven runs in the bottom of the ninth inning against the White Sox, a team that's 8-21 and now, a team that was no-hitting them the day before, and then the Rays went on to win 12-3 somehow from the seventh inning on. It's just baseball, and that's kind of one of the reasons we love it. You don't love it when you're losing – those kind of games, but when you win those kind of games, which happens a handful of uh, times throughout the year, it kind of evens out, or at least that's what you hope that it'll do. Let's talk about something on a little bit more positive note, though, and that would be Ronald Acuna Jr. I touched on this a little bit earlier in the show. Maybe the home runs aren't coming in bunches yet, but I think they're going to because I think he's going to start lifting the ball a little bit more, and I watch this guy take BP every day and hit baseballs into parts of that ballpark that nobody can reach without buying a ticket. He's going to hit his home runs. It's going to happen. The StatCast numbers on this guy, though, are absolutely absurd. I pulled these up to look at them. And StatCast will let you know like, in what percentile a particular set of skills or outcomes for this player, um, it'll let you know where they rank in all of baseball. When you look at Ronald Lacuna Jr.'s, here's the thing. When you look at a StatCast chart, and you can pull it up if you go to Baseball Savant. This MLB.com has all this stuff up for you. It's so cool. If you love numbers, and if you don't love numbers, it's a chance to just kind of 
maybe learn something or see it demonstrated in a different way. You can watch Ronald Lacuna Jr. play, and you can be like, man, he hits the ball hard all the time. You go in here, and then you discover, oh, well, exactly how hard does he hit it? Oh, well, he's 97th and av- 97th percentile in average exit velocity, 98th percentile in max exit velocity, which basically says it's him and a handful of other players that hit it that hard that often. Hard hit percentage, 95th percentile. And all of his expected stats, so by making all of that hard contact, what should his average, his uh, on-base and slugging, all those things, what should they look like? 97th or better percentile for him in those as well. There's a whole lot of red on that chart. You want the red. That means you're red hot. You get into the kind of the medium, like pink to light blue. Then you get into the dark blue. It means you're ice cold. And Ronald Acuna Jr. hasn't had too many times on any chart uh, where it's been ice cold as far as what he's doing out there on a baseball field. And his stat cast certainly bears that out. But, again, you look at somebody who is doing the things that he's doing, on pace for about, about 25 home runs, on pace for 80-plus steals. That's only been done twice in baseball history. 25 homers, 80 steals, same season. And it happened the same year, 1986. It was Eric Davis and Ricky Henderson. So pretty good company. And I don't know if it gets to the 80 steals, but I think he could get to at least 50 steals, and I think he's going to get to 30-plus home runs. That doesn't happen too often either. Eric Davis did it in 1987. And if you don't know a lot about Eric Davis of the Cincinnati Reds, he is probably my great baseball what-if. A lot of players, they look at, or a lot of fans, they look at different players and like, well, what if he hadn't gotten hurt? Or what if he'd never left this team? Or what if that trade had never happened? Eric Davis is my, what if he had been healthy? I think he could have hit 400 home runs and stole 400 or 500 bases. I think he'd be in the Hall of Fame, to be honest. But, you know, that aside, Ronald Acuna Jr. is doing things that you're just not seeing. I mean, it's a generation removed from the last time somebody was doing it at that level uh, with that degree of success, and I think he's primed for a career year moving forward into this season. Uh, Matt Olson, meanwhile, providing a lot of production uh, throughout the course of this year, but the strikeouts a little bit higher than I think anybody would like, particularly against lefties. That's where he's really been struggling. And I looked at his K rate, and it has more than doubled since his 2021 season in Oakland. I think that's going to normalize. And while a lot of people are jumping around and, and looking at the strikeout rate and feeling like, you know, this guy's on pace to strike out 260 times, that's not going to happen. He's also on pace for 150 RBI, and if that happens, I might just be okay with the 260 strikeouts. We'll see how all of that plays out. That's going to wrap things up on From the Diamond for this week. Appreciate you joining me as always. Appreciate Dom helping me out here, keeping the show rolling each and every week. And thanks to Brandon Gauden and Jeff Passan for joining the show. Again, if you missed anything, you can find From the Diamond wherever you get your podcast. You can find me next Sunday right here on 92.9 The Game. And until then, this has been From the Diamond with Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.